Well, uh, with that, I uh, would like us to turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. So we're back in our series in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. If you're following along on an app and you can choose the version, uh, we're going to be looking at the English Standard Version uh, of that text. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Actually, um, we're we're going uh, to be hearing from 12 to 16, but I'm going to start reading from verse 7, just so that we can kind of jog our memory uh, to be reminded where we're at. Okay, so we're going to look at Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, we basically got through the first part of chapter 3 where Paul uh, lists his resume and his credentials. And he basically says, you know, uh, I have so much to boast about. You know, by, by all the world standards, I've reached basically the height uh, of religiosity. I've reached uh, just by any standards, uh, you know, I have reached the height of righteousness that comes through the law. And he says, but my relationship with Christ has forced me to take a hard look at even all those great things, all those accomplishments, and for me to say, but I count it all as loss. I count all of that as garbage, as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And what we see here... uh, Right after he gets through that section, uh, Paul has this very interesting statement in verse 12 where he says, but not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And this is one of those kind of weird Paul moments again uh, where he gives us kind of a, a paradox. For those of you who don't know what paradox means, a paradox is just something that's seemingly contradictory but actually true. And the Bible is full of paradox. The Christian life is full of paradox. This entire letter uh, to the Philippians is full of paradox. You know, Paul says, you know, if you want to truly live, you have to die. If you want to be lifted up, you have to be brought down low. If you want to be free, like really free, you have to become a slave. If you want true confidence, you have to become humble. 
And so much of the Christian faith is kind of navigating this tension, not with either or, but with both and. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. Was Jesus fully man? Yes. Is our salvation freely given as a gift that requires nothing from us to work for? Yes. Does our salvation require us to obey, to surrender, to die to ourselves every single day? Yes. It's this weird tension of 100% God, but also there is a 100% of our surrendering, of our effort. It's not our earning, but it's our effort. You know, and one of the things that we see here uh, that is really interesting, the first paradox I kind of want to point us to, because even in verses 12 to 16, it's full of paradox. And verse 12, we see this. Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal. That's the NIV version of it. In the ESV, it says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Well, the interesting thing is, in verse 15, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And the interesting thing is, that word mature and am already perfect, they're actually the same Greek word, teleos. And so on one hand, Paul says, let those of us who are teleos, let those of us who are mature, so he's calling himself mature, but then in verse 12 he says, not that I have already obtained perfection or maturity. So what Paul is saying is, actually the, the, the big paradox in the Christian faith is, you know you are mature when you feel immature. That you know that you're maturing as a believer when you actually believe you have such a long way to go, when you realize how not mature you are. And that's one of the paradoxes of life, where we feel like we're kind of, the more we progress and advance toward a goal, actually the more we feel super far away from it. Now, those of you who are older know that it's not the more you live, the more you know. It's actually the more you live, the more you realize how little you know. Um, you know, one of the things I realized when I became a father of two kids, you know, from one child to two kids, you know, there's a part of me that feels, you know, there's a part of you that kind of feels like you graduate, right? You're going to the next level of parenthood when you have one child and then you go to two children, okay? And so in some, in some sense, you have kind of a confidence and a pride about yourself to say, you know, I'm at a different tier now. You know, I'm a multi-child parent, okay? But one of the things you realize uh, as, you be, as you kind of advance objectively is that you actually feel like worse of a parent when you have two than when you had one. Because you are very rarely in a situation where both children are thriving at the same time. One child might be super healthy and the other child has like a virus, you know, just when we thought, you know, when, when, when we look at our daughter Avery and she's sitting there and she can clean up after herself and she can go to the bathroom on her own and, and we're like, man, we made it. This is awesome. Then we look back and we see Jack and he's, he has meatballs in his hair and he's rubbing it into his eyes and, and then we start screaming at him and then that scares Avery and she starts screaming and then they're both screaming and then all of a sudden you feel like you did when you first had kids for the first time. You feel so far from where you need to be as a parent. We know this uh, in the workplace. 
Some of you who, who have killed it at your job and that allowed you to get a promotion and go to the next level and before you were kind of like a big fish in a small pond, you know this, you're progressing, you're advancing and you go to the next level, you get promoted, but what happens? Now you're kind of a small fish in a big pond. You're around big guns. You're around people who are at least as good, if not more further along in their careers than you are. The expectations are higher. The stakes are higher. The responsibilities are greater. And sometimes, even though objectively on paper you've progressed further in your career, you kind of feel like you've taken two steps back. You feel more lost than you were before the promotion. And this is what Paul is getting at here when he says, let those of us who are mature realize that we have not obtained this. We're still a work in progress. We're still in the middle. We still have such a long way to go. And it's one of the great paradoxes of life that the harder you push for something, the harder it feels to achieve. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. I remember when I was a little kid and I listened to Coldplay for the first time. I listened to the song, The Scientist, and it's four chords. That's it. It's a beautiful song, but it's four chords. And I said, if that's what it takes to be a songwriter, I can be a songwriter. You know, and I, I, you know, I, I learned the guitar because of that. And I thought I could be this songwriter. But the, the more I advanced in my knowledge of music... The more I got to know other musicians, the more I tried to write music, the more I realized how far I am from the mark. The more I realized how, how elementary I actually am, how naive I was to even think that that was easy. And Paul is saying the more you know Christ, the more you realize how little you actually know about him. The more you know Christ, the more you, you realize how little you actually know about him. And Paul, after that, or right after he says that, he says this interesting line, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And it kind of reminds us of what Paul does in chapter one of Philippians. Paul says, he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. But then in chapter two, we read, work, uh, but work out uh, your salvation with fear and trembling. And you see this paradox again, that it's all God and yet Paul is calling us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We see that again here. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That Paul is giving us this picture that no, there is effort. The Christian faith isn't this apathetic, passive thing that we've received. And I think in the Western church, we often see it as something that we get once and then it's over. Uh, J.I. Packer, who's a, who's a great theologian, he once said, sanctification is an ongoing cooperative process in which regenerate persons are required to exert themselves in sustained obedience. God's method of sanctification is neither activism, self-reliant activity, nor apathy, God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. 100% God at work in us and 100% us exerting ourselves in sustained obedience. 
You see, the gospel is the story of God chasing after us. And it's not, we don't exert ourselves, we don't press on because we're trying to chase after God. We're trying to earn his love or prove ourselves to, to, to prove something to ourselves, to others, or to God. But we live and we exert ourselves, we chase, we pursue as a response to what God has already given to us. We take hold of that which Christ has taken hold of us. And we all know what this feels like. Um, this week, I was talking to a friend. Uh, she just got into a relationship, and it's going well. It's going extremely well. Uh, she met a guy who, who loves her, who treats her with respect, who loves Jesus. Uh, it looks like they're on the road to marriage. And uh, she kind of uh, was sharing with me, you know, I have a history of, of being in very destructive relationships. You know, she kind of uh, has been in relationships where she's been verbally abused, uh, where, you know, it's been, it's just been extremely uh, painful, a lot of just uh, horrible things. And this is kind of like the narrative that she's convinced herself, convinced of. And so she met this new guy and everything is going well. And she says, you know, Jason, uh, there's a part of me that keeps believing like he's going to hurt me. That something's going to go wrong. I just can't get myself to, to get out of that narrative that has become such an important part of my life. That, is, that has come to shape the way I view men. That has come to shape the way I view relationships. And she said, I know that I don't have to do anything to earn this relationship. This relationship is, is, is mine. You know, he loves me. He respects me. But it takes so much work to actually break out of old habits, to actually break out of old narratives and things that I consciously and subconsciously do, uh, I realize that I'm, I'm sometimes sabotaging my own relationships because I can't imagine a relationship that is loving. I can't imagine a person that would treat a woman with respect. And this is what Paul is getting at. He says, the gospel tells us that it was all God he chased after us, he loved us, he cherished us. There was nothing we needed to do and yet we need to learn how to live in that love. We need to learn how to respond to break out of old narratives and break out of old habits and that takes work. That is hard work. And Paul, Paul is very specific here and he goes on to describe exactly what pressing on looks like. Notice in verse 13, Paul says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And we're going to break that up. Uh, we're going to break that up a little bit. We'll start with forgetting what lies behind. What's Paul getting at here? Paul is obviously not saying we need to forget about our past. We need to not think about our past. We need to brush our past under the rug. We need to, Paul is absolutely not saying that. We know this because at the beginning of chapter three, Paul lists out everything that happened in his past. Paul talks about his history. He talks about having been circumcised on the eighth day. He talks about the people he studied under. He talks about the fact that he used to be a Pharisee. He talks about the fact that he used to persecute Christians. Paul does not brush his past under the rug. So what is Paul getting at when he says forgetting what lies behind? Paul is saying no longer does your past define you. When he says forget about your past, he's saying everyone has a past. I'm not saying literally 
erase the past or don't think about it. I'm saying is, is that when you get into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he actually redefines the way you look at your past. Um, you know, you've, you've probably heard this analogy before, but you know that horses, uh, especially racehorses, because they need to stay on the racetrack and they need to stay on course, they put blinders on them. This is the only way horses can actually run in the line, you know, run properly. Because if they took those blinders off, horses have a tendency to look back and to look around, and it would be a disaster. You know, I mean, horse racing would not even be a thing. And and that actually comes from the way horses are. And uh, you know, I hope there are no science teachers in the room because I'm not a hundred percent sure this is true. But um, I, I think I remember this from science class in high school. Uh, horses, as animals, have eyes on the side of their head. And when animals have eyes on the side of their head, it's an indication that they're actually hunted animals. Um, and and animals with eyes on the side of their head, they have amazing peripheral vision because they're constantly having to look to the sides, constantly having to look back. They're constantly being hunted by things that are coming from their right, from their left, coming from behind them. And this is why horses are naturally fearful, anxious creatures, because they're constantly looking around, they're constantly looking back, constantly looking to the right and left. And human beings, we, are, we have amazing peripheral vision. We are constantly distracted by the things on our left and right. We are constantly distracted by what that person is doing and what that person is doing. We're constantly distracted by things that are behind. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Our relationship with Christ redefines our past. And it redefines three things about our past. It redefines our successes. A lot of us, uh, we, we grew up like Paul. We were the golden children of our family, and we are, we are naturally winners. Everything has come easy for us. We got into good schools, got good jobs, got married, had kids. We live a great, comfortable life. And Paul says, our relationship with Christ redefines our successes. We look at those things and we say, rubbish. But Paul also said, when he says, forgetting what lies behind, he also says our relationship with Christ, it redefines our failures. I know for a lot of us, we bring a lot of past baggage into the room today. A lot of past regrets, disappointments, sins that we've committed and sins that have been done to us. Trauma, people who have hurt us, people who have abused us, things that have happened that we don't know have an impact on our lives uh, that actually have been shaping our narratives from day one. I was just talking to my mom yesterday. When I was a very young child, she was, uh, she was in a really life-threatening uh, car accident uh, by a drunk driver. And I, I think I was nine or ten years old, and I was talking to her yesterday, and we were talking about it, and I, talked, I was telling her, I remember exactly what you were wearing uh, when you came home from the hospital. I remember uh, exactly where I was. I remember the facial expression on my dad's face. And she was shocked. She was like, how did you possibly remember it? And, and I was shocked that I remembered all those details as well. And you don't understand. We often don't understand how, how much we remember the things that have happened in our past. 
how much the things that have happened since childhood shape us, how much they subconsciously and consciously uh, get in the way of the way we interact with the world and get in the way uh, with the way we interact with people. And especially if you're young, when you're young, you don't realize how much we're shaped by our childhood, how much we're shaped by our past. But as you get older, as you begin to experience life, and especially after marriage, you see all of that come out. You see all of that come to the surface. Because from the day you were born, every single thing that happens to you begins to shape you, consciously, subconsciously. And it, it absolutely has an impact on the way that you relate with people, whether or not you can trust people, the way you function in the world. And what Paul is saying here, when he says, forgetting what lies behind, it's not, don't erase your past, but allow Christ to redefine your past. Because only in the gospel, only the gospel says, who you are today is not who you were. The gospel says, who you are today is who you are becoming. The gospel is the only worldview where your present is defined by your future. The person you're becoming is who you are today. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say forgetting what lies behind. He also says straining forward to what is ahead. And the language here of this entire section is the language of a race. Paul loves using uh, athletic language. And I don't know, I'm sure there are people in here who've run marathons before. Uh, I have not run a marathon, but the imagery here is of a race, of straining forward. If you notice anyone on the last leg of the marathon near the finish line, they're always, they have their necks craned forward and they're straining toward the goal. And those of you who've run a race before know that, uh, or I think it's around mile five, you hit runner's high where you feel like you can run forever. But around mile 20, six miles before the finish line, you hit something called the wall where you literally feel like you're, you, you can't do it anymore. You, you, are, you have exerted yourself to the point of complete exhaustion, to the point of collapse. And that's the language Paul is using here to press on, to exert yourself, to grasp, to chase, to pursue to the point of collapse. Um, I can't relate to this because I have never run a marathon, but those of you who know me well know that I love to eat. And those of you who really know me well know that uh, I used to participate in eating competitions back in the day, okay? Kind of crazy, hard to believe, but I, I dare you to challenge me to an eating competition, and, uh, and we'll see. But one of the, uh, one of the eating competitions I did was in Texas. Uh, it was at the Big Texan, okay? And I was doing a road trip, and my, my friends challenged me to do it, and so we drove by the Big Texan, and the challenge is uh, you have to, within an hour, uh, you have to eat a 72-ounce steak. Uh, you have to eat a side of shrimp. Uh, some biscuits, uh, a baked potato, and a side salad, okay? You have an hour to eat it, okay? They put you on a stage like this. The entire stage is covered in cow hide. It's, it's, it's so disgusting. They put two uh, trash cans next to you because most people throw up. Um, they, you know, they give you a choice of whatever you want to drink. So, you know, got my Diet Coke. Um, 
you know, in, in Texas, there are also no, no Asian people. Like where, where I was there, I think it was like Amarillo, Texas. There are no Asian people there. So, you know, people were, they were like, who is this guy? Is he Kobayashi? You know, I, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, at the beginning when I got up there, uh, people started taking photos with me. You know, there was like a cheerleading squad from like uh, Baylor or something that was visiting there. And then, you know, they got up, they were taking pictures with me. They want to take pictures of the Kobayashi. And so... Uh, eating is the same way. Around minute 20, I was like coasting. This, I mean, this is easy. You call this a competition? So I just, I mean, I was like enjoying my food. I was savoring every bite. I started like mixing my like uh, steak pieces into my baked potato. I was like mixing, put, putting Tabasco on it. It was great. Uh, but there's a, there's a couple photos of me at minute 50, Okay. And like my eyes are rolled back uh, into my head. Uh, I look like a demon-possessed person. And uh, you hit a wall where you're looking at the time and you literally feel like you, you can't do it anymore. That your body literally cannot hold another bite. And you are exerting yourself to the point of collapse. They actually have someone with a video camera uh, standing there at the end of the time to follow you to the bathroom because you're not allowed to throw up your food uh, after you go to the bathroom and you, you, you can't walk. You're, you've exerted yourself to the point of collapse and that's the closest thing that uh, I have gotten to running a marathon before. You know, I, you know, I believe you burn the same amount of calories uh, in either way. But uh, at that point, you are truly tricking your body like, you're, you're, you're truly believing that your brain is more powerful than your body. And your mental fortitude has to be off the charts in order to get through that. And this is the imagery that Paul is giving when he says, this is the Christian faith. You are exerting yourself to the point of collapse. And I think for Western Christians, people who live in America, for whom Christianity can be very comfortable where coming to church is easy. Uh, this imagery do doesn't sit well with us because anything outside of what we do already on a Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday basis just feels like extremism. It feels like that's something reserved for the fanatics. And yet Paul isn't calling pastors. Paul isn't calling missionaries to live this way. He's calling all Christians. He's saying, if you know Jesus... This is the mindset, to strain forward to what is ahead. Uh, A.W. Tozer has a book uh, called The Pursuit of God. It's one of the most important books that I've read, uh, ha has had one of the greatest impacts on my faith, and he writes this. He says, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ and we're not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more to seek him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy and it is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside the experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of scripture 
which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a Brainerd. Matthew Henry says, wherever there is true grace, there is a, de there is a desire for more grace. Whenever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. And now I want us to make sure we understand that paradox. Again, it is not us straining forward because we don't have God's love. It is not us pressing on, exerting all our effort to validate ourselves or justify ourselves or prove ourselves. We are exerting ourselves to take hold of that which has taken hold of us. The best example I can give uh, for those of you who've ever worked out before and you've ever bench pressed, okay, uh, you know uh, that spotters are extremely important. I've tried a few times without a spotter and have been humiliated at the gym, okay? And without a spotter, there are weights that you will not even attempt because you won't be able to get it up. But what's the purpose of a spotter? When a spotter stands behind you and says, I'm gonna need you to do six or eight or 10, but I'm gonna help you and I'm gonna make sure you finish six or eight or 10 and you begin to exert. The spotter isn't lifting the bar for you. You are exerting all your energy. And around the last couple, those of you who, who, like, who've worked out hard before, you know that it's almost impossible to get up on your own. I mean, you actually feel like the spotter is doing all the work. And yet you're exerting all your energy with the confidence knowing that the spotter is holding you up knowing that in the end, you're gonna get through the six, you're gonna get through the eight, you're gonna get through the 10 because it's the spotter holding you up. And that's the imagery we have here when Paul says, I press on to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. In Christ, we're not pushing out of fear. We're not pushing to try to prove ourselves. We're pushing knowing that Jesus is the one holding us. We're pushing knowing that Jesus will not let us go. We're pushing knowing that Jesus will carry out to completion everything that he started. And here's the thing. In those last few pushes on the bench, I mean, you feel weaker than ever. I mean, you, like, sometimes it's embarrassing. You definitely feel uh, weaker than you did on the first, on the first rep. But everyone who's been working out for a long time knows it's those last few with the help of the spotter, those moments when you feel the weakest where you're getting, the, where you're getting gains. Those are the moments when your muscles are tearing at the highest rate. Those are the moments where you're actually developing strength. And this is what we see here. This is why the Bible says Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. When we feel the weakest, when we feel the most lost, when we feel the most uncertain, this is when God's glory is fully revealed in our lives. Because the more we ask for God's presence, the more God's presence creates an awareness of our need. And the more our need creates an awareness of God's glory and God's strength and God's grace, and the more God's grace and God, it's just the constant cycle back and forth. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Some of us, I think, um, 
may think we're in a losing season right now. I think there are some of us in this room that feel like uh, you're not, you look at your own life, you look at where you are in your career, where you are as a husband or wife or as a father, mother, son, daughter, as a friend, and you look at your life and you say, I am nowhere near where I need to be. And I feel like I'm losing. If Paul teaches us anything, it's that you actually may be closer to the heart of God than you think. That the more you realize, the more you, the closer you get to maturity, the further you can feel from it because the more you learn to walk in his ways, the more questions you have. You know, as a pastor, you know, I've been, uh, you know, having gone through seminary uh, education, you know, as I, you know, train myself to preach on a week-to-week basis, sometimes I, I get extremely frustrated because you, you get these questions and people come to you for counseling and there are a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of things that happen in the church. And you feel like, okay, after this much education, after this many years of serving the church, after this many years of being a Christian, you would think that you would have certainty. You think that you would be able to give someone an answer and they would be like, thank you, pastor, and walk away and then their life would be good. And yet something that I realize as I learn more and as I grow in my relationship with God and as I grow in my faith is that I'm actually more uncertain than I ever was. People bring issues to the table and I realize, man, I realize that that issue isn't as black and white as I once thought it was. I realize that I have so many more questions. 15 years ago, if you asked me, why, do, why is there suffering in the world? Why do, people, uh, why do good people suffer? If you ask me, like, why did this happen to my son or daughter? If you ask me, why am I going through this trial in my life? Why, why is life so difficult? Why is, there, why is there so much grief and suffering? I would have quoted you a Bible verse and had you go away. But as I try to lead this community and as I, as I cry with you guys, as I walk with you through all the different stages of your life, I realize that life is more gray than I ever thought it was. I realize how little I know. I realize that I don't have all the answers. And yet Paul says, this is the sign that you're maturing. Those of us who are mature would know that we're nowhere near where we need to be. We're somewhere in the middle. And so a few questions I would ask you today as we think about forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what is ahead. What are the things you need to leave behind? What are the things about your story, your narrative, about your past experiences, about the things that you've done and the things that have happened to you that you have found have begun to shape you? have begun to shape your narrative, have begun to shape your view of yourself. If you grew up in a household where all you heard was that you're a failure, you're not good enough, you need to do more, I guarantee you, you are holding that and you are carrying that into your workplace. You are carrying that idea of being a failure into your relationships. I guarantee you, you are doing that. And if there's anything Paul reminds us to do, we need to constantly take inventory. What are the things we need to leave behind? What are the things we need to let go of? And what are the things we need to do to press on? 
What does it mean for us to create more space for us to experience the gospel, for us to create more space in the word, to pray, in community? What are the things we need to do to strain forward to what is ahead? And remember, if you're feeling exhausted and if you're feeling tired and burnt out and you feel like you've hit a wall, there are two questions you need to ask yourself. Are you feeling this way because you're trying to do it on your own? Are you feeling this way because you're trying to exert effort to try to prove yourself? Or are you feeling this way because you're reaching for a grace that is already yours? Are you feeling this way because you're, you're trying to take hold of that which has already taken hold of you? Because as followers of Jesus, the grace that you need to change, the grace that you need to go forward is already yours. It's already yours. Um, when you follow Jesus' road to the cross in Luke's gospel, it's just, he, he runs like the equivalent of 50 marathons because it's just wall after wall after wall after wall. In Luke 22, 42, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 43, there's an interesting verse that gets inserted there. It says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And it was like God saying, press on, Jesus. I'm holding you up. I'm strengthening you. And then verse 44, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Jesus pressed on. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But then that wasn't the last wall. Because after he prayed that way, he woke up and he realized, or he, he prayed and he looked around and he realized his friends had fallen asleep. He realized he was all alone. And that wasn't the last wall. Because then a, a few moments later, he was betrayed. A few moments later, he was arrested. A few moments later, he watched as his closest friend, his best friend, the one who had done life with him for so many years, denied him three times. And he continued to press on, to press on, to press on. And he walked that road all the way up to the cross when he was crowned with thorns and finally when he was hung on a cross. And here's the craziest thing about this entire scene, about Jesus' entire walk to the cross that he was the most powerful in his weakest moment. When Jesus hung on a cross, when he had exerted himself to the point of collapse, when he had nothing left to give, that was when he was saving the world. That was his most powerful moment because the Bible says when he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished, it says the curtain tore in two, the earth shook. I know for many of us, life is really tiring. And we think that uh, as we get to the close of 2019, we were like, please let this year be over. Because it's been such a crazy year and I'm ready for 2020. But I'm sorry, but 2020 is gonna be just as hard, if not, hard, if not harder. Because if there's anything I've learned in my life is that it never gets easier. And sometimes I know we look at our lives and we're exhausted. We feel weak. We, we, we're, we're done. We're ready to throw in the towel. 
You know, if we, if we look at what Jesus did on the cross and if we realize that God's strength was made perfect in his weakness, in his most vulnerable, exposed, weak state, that is when we saw the grace of God fully manifested and we saw God's glory fully revealed. It gives us hope knowing that we are, though we are a work in progress, though we are putting, we wake up every day morning and we grind it out and we put one foot in front of the next we know that in the end this is where God is working in us most powerfully it's in our weakest most vulnerable moments when Jesus is working in us so we press on as a church that's my exhortation for us we press on to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold in us let's pray God, for many of us, um, the end of the year is always a time of reflection, uh, always a time for the coulda, woulda, shouldas. When we look back uh, at the year that has passed and we wished we could have done things better, we feel like we could have done more, we start to feel like uh, who we are is not enough. And I know that many of us feel like we've hit a wall in life. Many of us feel like we've hit a wall in our faith where it's just difficult to trust you. It's difficult to live a life according to your will. It's difficult to live, period. But God, I pray that we would take the words of Philippians 3 um, with encouragement that even the Apostle Paul, someone who... um, perhaps the greatest theologian, the greatest church planter in history felt like he he still had a ways to go, that he was not the person that he wanted to be. But I pray that like Paul, we would also realize that we press on not out of our own strength. We press on not, not to earn your love, but we press on as a response to the love you have lavishly bestowed on us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray that that would give us the confidence to press harder. That would give us the confidence to pursue righteousness with even greater fervor, knowing that it's in these moments of need and weakness and vulnerability that your strength is made perfect. Thank you for this word today. We thank you for all the ways that uh, your goodness and your mercy and your grace uh, has been shown to our community and in our lives individually. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.